Hey everyone, this is Kevin Hale and Sarah Hale. Hi everyone, and you're with us at Vegan Theology. Yeah, episode ten. What? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. What? what I thought I thought this was nine. No, nine was last week. Okay, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are going to dive into a current theologian, Andrew Lindsay. We've mentioned him a tiny bit on this podcast, but he is a British theologian who's published widely. I, I tried to figure out exactly how many books he's published, and of course, depending on the, on the place I went, it's anywhere between two dozen to almost 40, I think, wow. depending on how they're counted. Yeah. If, you know, some of the articles are maybe are counted and sometimes not. So, so far in this podcast, Kevin and I have been trying to kind of build and form our own theology around veganism, just some of the things we've been wrestling with and thinking about as vegans who are Christians, as Christians who are vegans, for a few years. So we've just been trying to get that a little bit more organized and developed, um, which is great that we're doing that for ourselves and Hopefully everyone that's listening is benefiting from that as well. But we were thinking another thing that's really important for us to do as we do this work is to avail ourselves to other theologians who have already done some of this work. And Andrew Lindsay is certainly one of those people. Um, He's devoted his life to studying as a theologian, as a philosopher, studying Um, how animals fit into our theology. And I'm really curious, as we do this, how much does our thinking so far overlap with what other theologians are thinking? How how their work can actually bolster and strengthen what we've been thinking? Right. Yeah, so I'm excited. Um, We're primarily going to be discussing... I think his most popular book at this point. Your most well read, I think. Entitled Animal Theology by Andrew Lindsay. Yeah. But we'll be pulling in some other stuff as well. Yeah, and it's worth noting the Creation Care Church online, their presence, they're doing a book club on this right now, too. So awesome. I think it's on Saturdays at 1 p.m., I believe. I'm not sure what their time zone is. I need to look that up. Yeah, uh, we haven't made it, even I though know. We, we, I keep wanting we, to. we wanted to, but it just but hasn't yeah, happened. They're discussing this book, so you can always join them as well. Yeah, and another thing that makes it kind of perfect timing is that Andrew Lindsay's son, I believe his name is Jesse, let me just grab that, has created a documentary honoring Andrew Lindsay, his life and his work, and that is... Coming out soon, soon. Yeah, is coming the soon. we don't have a We're date, excited. yeah. But yeah, they keep saying coming soon, and the title of that documentary is called "The Animal Thing," which is kind of a fun right. title. I wanted to share a little. If you go to the Animal Thing website, you'll see the Animal Thing charts the struggles of animal rights pioneer and theologian. And I've, I've also seen him called a maverick theologian. Uh, which see, I like that. I do yeah. too. <laughs> maverick theologian Andrew Lindsay, as explored by his filmmaker son. This is a story of a man who spoke out as a progressive voice in the Anglican church, a polarizing force at the University of Oxford, 
and as a tireless campaigner for animal rights on a range of issues from fox hunting and seal clubbing to vivisection. And if anybody's not familiar with that term, that is just scientific research on live animals. Today, Andrew considers himself a failure. But despite the immense price he has paid for confronting the cruelty of animal exploitation, Andrew has also had an enormous and until now largely unheralded impact on the modern animal movement. So two things that I think are worth noting there, the fact that he largely considers his life's work to be a failure. You know, nobody likes to hear somebody say that. And you have to wonder why he feels that way. And the only thing that comes to mind for me is he maybe he thought he should have accomplished more in this. Like we should have gotten, he should have moved the bar further. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the only thing that comes to my mind. And I mean, I think... I think we as vegans do feel like failures at times in our, within our church. It's hard. It's yeah. hard to have fellowship with people you love and people you worship God with and people you serve God with. And then they turn around and they're without reflecting on their choices. They're continuing to support animal agriculture and support right. the commodification of our fellow creatures. It's, I, yeah, sometimes I, I relate to feeling like a failure. Like um, some of my best friends, family members who I love mo- more than anybody in the world have no understanding of why I'm a vegan. And sometimes it makes right. you feel like a failure. Right. Yeah. Also what it says, he has paid an immense price for confronting the cruelty of animal exploitation. I, I wonder about that too. That, mm. that makes me curious. Like, yeah, I'm curious about that as well. I hope the documentary dives into it. I think it's hopefully going to talk about the development of his influence. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's what it's about. It takes a lot of courage to walk into academia and to the fields of theology and be talking about animals. It takes, I'm sure, part of the price he's paid is just being disrespected by his yeah. co- colleagues and. But yeah, I'm curious. I'm not taken seriously, right? Mm-hmm. This is a quote from Andrew Lindsay on the website for the documentary. We have to move away from the idea that animals are things, tools, machines, commodities, resources, here for our use, to the idea that as sentient beings, they have intrinsic value, dignity, and rights. Well said, Andrew. But yeah, as I said, this is put together by his son. The son says, um, while interviewing Joyce Tischler, a trailblazing animal rights lawyer, she said, quote, animal people are often broken people, end quote. As soon as she said that, I realized she might as well be describing my dad. Most people who know my father, Andrew Lindsay, regard his life as a great success, but dad sees his life rather differently as a series of failures. Now in his 70s and with his health deteriorating, I wanted to finally tell his story, to explore his ideas, and hopefully to prove that he's not a failure. Wow. Yeah. What a blessing, huh? Yes, I'm very excited. I also noticed that Andrew Lindsay is interviewed on another documentary Mm. that we're anxiously awaiting. Is that right? Yes. Very cool. 
So you may have heard that there's a documentary coming out soon, quote unquote. I think it's going to be in the new year, though. Okay, um, called Christspiracy, and I saw on their trailer that um, Andrew Li- Andrew Andrew Lindsay appears on that. Oh, trailer. that's cool. So I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. So, um, so this book that we're going to be discussing is a 1995 publication. The book is based on a series of lectures given in the Faculty of Theology at Oxford in 1993. So, you know, in the introduction, he just mentions that these issues of animals, theology, and ethics are still sadly neglected by the theological world. Hmm. So, again, how much courage does it take when you go into these fields and you start talking about this, and everybody looks at you like you're insane, basically. Oh, yeah, that you're an alien or something. It's just not on the radar. Right. And even though whenever we do look into it, including this first chapter of this book that we'll be discussing today, you find out that there have been thinkers throughout time. Like even, I think he references, one of the people he references is wrote in the... Um, the 17th century, like 16-something, and he was writing like a strong, theologically vegan message yeah. back then. So it seems like in every generation or if any in every century, it seems like there are people who are sensitive to this and who are thinking about this. But as of yet, it just seems like it never really catches on into like the mainstream of thought. Right. That's why we're here. We would like to contribute <laughs> yeah, to that's what we're trying to do. Yes, to putting this way of thinking out there. Um, so he says, my overall intention is to question the all too comfortable assumption that if theology is to speak on this question, it must do so only on the side of the oppressors of animals. So he's kind of like, let's let's talk about this from a, a different perspective than just the anthropocentric perspective. Right. He acknowledges in the introduction that he knows the work will be criticized by theologians as being like another trendy spin-off on theology. Like, oh, some kind of liberation theology. Yeah. yeah. All the all the various liberation theologies. Yeah, I saw that too. Or quote a flight from real theology into the arms of secular moral fashion. Right. I'm so glad he brings this up because his answer to that is actually, no, this is not a spinoff. This is not a trend. This is not like an add-on to real theology. It very much is consistent and in line with our theology. And it's, it should be almost like a centerpiece to our theology. Um, my argument, he says, throughout is not only that justice requires a thoroughgoing revision of our treatment of animals, but also, quite specifically, that historical theology creatively expounded also requires this. Indeed, in some ways, the theological kernel of this book derives from what to some will appear an overly conservative, unabashed, Trinitarian formulation of Christian theology, of Christian orthodoxy. I hold that Christian theology provides some of the key categories of thought which enable a fully satisfying ethical conception of the place of non-human creatures in our world. 
I think that's really interesting. He's he's saying, you know, if anything, rather than being some kind of liberal, secular, trendy spin-off, you're going to find that actually I'm I'm very conservative theologically. Right. And I can be that way and be consistently vegan. In fact, right. You know, that's that's what makes it so pure and true. Yeah, just the struggle we have with saying that something that's countercultural that goes against, you know, the stream, the current, you know, people don't really know what to make of you. Right. And so they start making that might be what it is. assumptions and yeah, I think it's something we have to deal with and struggle with. Right. And he goes on, I really like this paragraph in the introduction. He goes on to say, Indeed, I question the timidity of those who hold fast to Trinitarian faith and at the same time seemingly oppose, as a matter of principle, any exploration of its relevance beyond familiar boundaries. I propose that it has to be a matter of regret, even repentance, that the community of faith, which holds to the objective truth of the self-revelation of God in Christ, should have advanced its world-affirming doctrine without much more than a passing thought for the billions of non-human inhabitants within creation itself. What are we to say of a theology which has so proceeded on the basis of a moral neglect of God's creatures? Yeah. It's very strong language. Right. He's basically saying we need to repent to to just completely ignore any theological thought when it comes to the rest of creation. Right. Is should be something that is obviously wrong and that we we do need to pay attention. Right. We we do need to develop our theology. You know, it's interesting because I keep thinking about this too. Like I know he really says in his books that we are our theology is very anthropocentric, which is what we've been saying as well. And it's funny, if, you know, again, being conservative, going to Bible college, we we did street evangelism and everyone is very familiar with the most famous, you know, verse John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the funny thing about that is is I think in our thinking, in our minds, the Greek word under the world is cosmos, uh, cosmos. And it's interesting because I feel like we always translate it as for God so loved the humans. And, and it could very well be that, you know, we need to do our own analysis and research on this. But I was just reading someone's book recently, and I'm trying to remember who it was, but they were maybe taking the view that I want to take, and that is it's not some metaphor. World is not a metaphor for just people. For God so loved the cosmos. Yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For the world, not just for the humans. So Yeah, the redemption and reconciliation of of all things. Of all of it. But I think in our minds we translate it to to just humans. Absolutely. So not only does he know he will be criticized by theologians, and, and he kind of gives a strong response to that, but he also knows he'll be criticized by animal rights activists who feel that theoretical, philosophical arguments have already been made, um, and he's saying, no, actually, we need a full-bodied theology, a holistic and positive interpretation of the place of animals in God's world. I'm really glad he brought this forward. It really I've, I've thought of this. Obviously, the, the whole reason we're doing this podcast is because we do believe that Christians, the church, need to develop a theology about non-human animals. Right. 
But he's saying, actually, your animal rights activism is incomplete if you don't have a full-bodied, God-centered mm. theology for why you're, what motivates you. Mm. And, you know, I just, I really did love that. He also says that the animal rights movement needs theology to help save itself from its own degeneration into moralism and self-righteousness. He says, quote, moral prescriptivism divorced from a thoroughgoing sense of the utter sinfulness of humankind leads inevitably to the cul-de-sac of moral triumphalism. Mm. And I really felt that. <laughs> I, I do agree. We have to keep before us our own fallenness, mm. our own propensity for short-sightedness or hypocrisies or blind spots in our own lives because it, it is very easy for me, I'm just being totally vulnerable and transparent right now, um, to really start to feel morally superior and very judgmental mm. of Christians who don't care about this stuff. And um, right. so pray for Sarah. Kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I welcome. I welcome any prayers you want to lift up for me. <laughs> Talk to me, to the Father, and I, I welcome. I welcome as much of that as I can get. But yeah, I think that I I appreciate that he made that point. Right, that we're all sinners. And I mean, sometimes I wonder like, okay, God, why did you reveal to me the truth about your will for animals and, and the way humans should engage with animals and consider them? Why did you reveal that to me and then not reveal it to my sister, not reveal mm. it to my brothers or not, you know, like my brothers and sisters in Christ? Like, right. uh, what is that about? Right. And it's a very uncomfortable place to be, but yeah, the fact that th our theology can actually help us not fall into that kind of judgmental right. posture, um, which just leads to isolating ourselves, right? right? Because if, if we're like, nobody is, nobody's taking this seriously like I am, you know, I have no fellowship here any longer. I have to separate from from this community of believers, which, believe me, it crosses my mind at times. Right. And I know a lot of vegans have left the church hmm. because they were not taken seriously or they were thought crazy or whatever. Right. Well, mocked. I mean, even we've been kind of laughed at a little bit and mocked. So it helps to know that he's thinking that along those right. lines and that there is a way we can remain humble and live in our truth as best we can right. in love. So again, the introduction makes a few allusions to the fact that in many ways he has felt alone in academia. It's clear that he's a nonconformist, which I, I tend to like the nonconformists in life. But like places like Mansfield College, um, where he has done work, he mentions how he loves and appreciates their intellectual openness. Mm. Um, so he felt like he was able to do his work there openly. By the end of the introduction, I just really felt an appreciation for the constant courage that Andrew Lindsay has had to have to devote his life to this work. And yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, through the documentary and other things, he can start to feel like he has left a great legacy right. and that he has made 
the world a better place. He has moved the needle forward or however you say that. Um, well, I mean, the thing too is if you go out to any search and look up any kind of, if you want to learn about animal theology or vegan theology, you're going to run into Andrew Lindsay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, also I just had such a sense of comfort because like we've, we also feel very, very alone <laughs> in our context. Right. And so, you know, just to know that, oh my goodness, there here is a seriously studied, credentialed, academic person who is saying a lot of the things that I've been trying to say. Right. It just makes you feel like, okay, maybe I'm not totally crazy and I'm not alone. Right. It's just, it's really comforting um, when you are used to feeling a little bit alone. And then I just kind of had this feeling of responsibility because... I'm aware of his work and I want to build upon it. I feel right. like I can stand on the shoulders of people like this Absolutely. who've gone before us and done this work, kind of blazed the trail in many ways. And right. yeah, for us to talk about him and, and let people know about him is hopefully just extending his legacy and spreading it even further. Yep. So getting into chapter one. Um, titled Reverence, Responsibility, and Rights. So reverence, responsibility, rights. So basically, uh, this chapter is principally concerned with what, this is his quote, uh, what we owe animals morally as God's creatures. And I discuss three questions. One, should we show respect or reverence to animals? Two, do we have responsibility to animals? And three, do animals have rights? Now, he mentions that he has at least two previous published books that are specifically about animal rights. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this isn't just going to be a rehashing of that. I'm actually going to add to that. And so he divides the chapter into these three categories or these three subheadings. Um, so the first one being reverence. And in each of these subcategories, he kind of pits one theolo one historical theologian against another hmm. historical theologian like on their view of for example this one is going to be on one theologian a Albert Schweitzer so Albert Schweitzer was quite the guy um, who lived from 1875 to 1965 and was, has been called a true humanitarian we're going to be contrasting Albert Schweitzer's view to Karl Barth's response to Schweitzer. Um, and of course, they were kind of contemporaries, actually. Karl Barth was like 10 years younger than Schweitzer. Um, Karl Barth lived from 1886 to 1968. I always like to know when people lived. It, I don't know why. It just helps me place them. Yeah. So, so Schweitzer, I looked him up. I, uh, To be honest, I was not aware of him. Of course, it seems like just about every Christian knows Karl Barth, at least his name. Right. But it's kind of unfortunate in my mind that I don't know, people don't know Albert Schweitzer, because he does, when you look him up, he seems like he was an amazing person. It says, for example, he was a polymath, theologian, organist, musicologist, writer, humanitarian, philosopher, and physician. In fact, I think he opened, looks like he opened um, at least one hospital in Africa. Wow. In fact, he died in Africa serving there. So a really beautiful person. 
it seems to me. So starting on the subject of reverence, should we show and have reverence for non-human animals? And one of Schweitzer's published books is actually entitled Reverence for Life. Mm. Now, he was a person who really criticized philosophizing that kind of goes off onto these secondary type issues instead of really dealing with rubber meets the road kind of main central issues. Mm. So he says the problem was that more and more uh, philosophers are discussing problems of a purely academic nature and in a mere virtuosity of philosophical technique. Mm. So he wanted to be more like, let's talk about ethics. Let's talk about how we should be living as, as Christians. And he says, ethics consists, therefore, in my experiencing the compulsion to show all will to live the same reverence as I do to my own. It is good to maintain and encourage life. It is bad to destroy life or to obstruct it. He uses this phrase, will to live. It's a little interesting, but he's basically saying any creature who has a will to live, well, I have that in common with them. And so I should show that reverence. Like I would want someone to show me reverence for my will to live. So it's kind of the golden rule, basically, is don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. The fact that he has this simple statement, it's good to maintain and encourage life, and it's bad to destroy or obstruct life. Right. I hear that kind of language in my church a lot, and whenever I hear someone say that, I'm thinking, you know, that is very vegan for you to make that statement. If you believe that our God is the God of life and flourishing and thriving, and our God is not the God of death and diminished life and you know truncated right. life, then if you're going to be at all consistent with that belief, you have to be vegan. Right. You know. Well, it's funny you say that because I keep thinking about that too. I think a lot of the we've talked about this. A lot of the theologians, theologians we've been reading, kind of what he's getting at here. What others are, this internal consistency in, if you put together what God is trying to do in his program and you think about love and you think about he created humans and and non-human animals and and the world and he cares about all of it. And there has to be this internal consistency, which I'm getting that straight from Andrew Lindsay. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He uses this concept of, he breaks down theology into theologia and I believe Albert Schweitzer does as well. And my point though, is in, and even just bringing this up is we you know we call ourselves vegan theology that's called animal theology his books, but at the end of the day it's just theology it is it's a very holistic theology I think at the end of the day when however you want to say it when everyone gets enlightened <laughs> sounds very um, I don't know when everyone becomes I when their theology becomes more holistic and more full it's not going to be a vegan theology it's not going to be an animal theology it's just going to be mm. a straight theology that. Wow that respects everything. That's awesome. All at once. I, I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, it, even this idea, it's bad to destroy life or obstruct it. And, you know, we just did um, a little radio show for our local radio, radio station on Thanksgiving 
turkeys, domesticated turkeys. And when you look at how much we have obstructed their lives from what they were naturally as wild turkeys, able to fly 55 miles an hour, able to roost in trees, have all these vocalizations that show their emotions through their skin color on their heads. You know, all these amazing characteristics. They're so intelligent. They, they learn so much and they're so affectionate and they're such good parents to their young. We have obstructed, diminished all of that. We've taken all of that away from them in our modern farming practices. Right. We've completely diminished and obstructed their lives. So destroyed their lives. Yes. So Lindsay breaks Schweitzer's views, his ethics about reverence down into basically three, he has three things to say about Schweitzer's views. First of all, he says, for Schweitzer, reverence is comprehensive. It's not one principle among many. It's the principle when it comes to morality and ethics. Like we should just have We should embody reverence when we step out into God's creation, when we're facing God's creation, and that could be another human being, but it could also be any of the creatures that God created. We should just, our first response should be reverence, awe. The second thing is that reverence is universal. It applies to all life forms. All life is sacred to Schweitzer. And Schweitzer even writes about, you know, helping insects. You know, when a, when a worm is drying out on the, on the road, you carefully put them back so that they can get back to where they need to be so they don't die, things like that. Um, so reverence is universal. Um, and he says, Schweitzer says that this person, the person he's imagining that embodies this reverence, he said he's not afraid of being laughed at as sentimental It is the fate of every truth, he reminds us, to be a subject for laughter until it is generally recognized. So that, of course, brings up to me Schopenhauer's view of truths, right? I think Schopenhauer said every truth goes through three phases. First, it's just laughed at Hmm. as ridiculous. And then it's violently opposed. And I don't feel like we've quite gotten there in our vegan activism hmm. as in general universally right. i don't think we've gotten to the point where we're, we're being violently opposed but it could come and then the truth is just accepted as obvious common sense so also the fact that he uses the word sentimental you know i think when people start saying you know we should have reverence for these creatures even the insects right i think you, we could be called sentimental but I kept thinking about that as I read this. It, actually, what, what is sentimental is believing that God only cares about humans. Mm, That's kind of a sentimental, Dang. you know, yeah. belief that very, pe- people want to hold on to. Very sentimental. Wow. So, um, so, again, number one, reverence is comprehensive. Number two, reverence is universal. And the number three... Uh, reverence is limitless. There will come a time, Schweitzer says, when people will be astonished that mankind needed so long a time to learn to regard thoughtless injury to life as incompatible with ethics. Reverence includes one's attitude, disposition, motive, as well as action. 
He says, whenever I injure life of any sort, I must be quite clear whether it is necessary. Beyond the unavoidable, I must never go. And I, I guess I appreciate that too. He's kind of allowing that, yes, we live in a fallen world in which at times one species butts up against another species. There may be justifiable times that humans do need to curb another species just for our own survival or comfort, I guess. Like it's, it can be messy. Like God gave us the task of ruling this creation, but be, especially because the fall and of sinfulness and, and corruption and decay, it can sometimes be hard to know what the best course of action is. Yeah. So it, it is complicated. We're not trying to be Pollyanna about it. It can be complicated at times. And he's saying, you know, look, if it's unavoidable, it's unavoidable, but make sure it's unavoidable. Do your right. best to make sure it's unavoidable violence. So he says the surmisings and the longings of all Uh. deep religiousness is contained in the ethic of reverence for life. And Lindsay points out philosophers like Peter Singer, uh, who are immersed in utilitarian calculations, simply miss this point entirely. His ethics Schweitzer's ethics is not an external law, but a mystical, spiritual, experiential way of living life in reverence. It's kind of like this, this awareness of the oneness of all things. And I know that can sound non-Christian to say that, right. but in the sense that it is all from God's hand, right. it's all representing God's character, it's all something that God cares about, and so it, because of that, and because God's creation is just amazing, right? There should, there should just be, the way we go through life should be a, from a position of reverence. So that's how he sums up Schweitzer's ethics. And then he moves into Karl Barth's reply. And he does say, you know, it, let's be clear that Karl Barth is seriously considering Schweitzer's point of view. He does not accuse him of sentimentality. He does say these are important things to consider. He does say that he ha- he takes issue the way that Schweitzer says that reverence should be universal for all forms of life. Bart's kind of like, well, wait a second. You cannot compare reverence for a plant to reverence for a mammal. You know, like there is a difference there. We should have you know, so and that's a normal thing that we hear a lot right. of in veganism is, you know, well, what about reverence for plants that you eat? And this is where, t- in my mind, Schweitzer is, again, he's not laying down specific rules and laws. He's just saying we should always err on the side of reverence and awe when it comes to dealing with any part of God's creation. Right. So Bart says, yes, you're right, Schweitzer, we have neglected these questions. Um, And he says we should seriously consider reverence for all created life. But he says this this really is a secondary responsibility. This is not of the importance of human-to-human relationships. So the key thing for Bart, his key criticism of Schweitzer is that 
you know, humans are special and we need to remember that. He says, man is the animal creature to whom God reveals and trusts and binds himself within the rest of creation, with whom he makes common cause in the course of a particular history, which is neither that of an animal nor of a plant, and in whose life activity he expects a conscious and deliberate recognition of his honor, mercy, and power. So for Bart, humans are the cherished creature. So that's his main criticism. I mean, I know Bart still has a, a large influence on Reformed theology, yeah. right? So, so I, I know that this kind of thinking is still very much what is accepted in those circles. Well, Lindsay makes a pretty, um, I'll just use the word courageous, uh, criticism of Bart. And he's like, he said, I know that to, to criticize Bart's Christology is because he's considered like the Christ Christological yeah. theologian par excellence. Yeah. But he says, he says, actually, his Christology is lacking in a few ways. <laughs> and, and that's wow. where that's where Lindsay goes after him. <laughs> he's got some. Yeah. I know. He's got some guts. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Um. He's saying what is difficult in Bart is not just that he proposes a fundamental theological distinction between humans and animals, but rather what he wants to deduce from such a distinction. What is so problematic is the way in which God's yes to humankind in the incarnation becomes a no to creation as a whole. So what Lindsay wants to do is focus in on the incarnation on Jesus's incarnation and and say it's not just a yes to the people the humankind mm -hmm. the human species it's a yes to all of creation and that's backed up in a lot of Paul's epistles and other right. epistles he said there are three christological relationships which seem strangely absent in Bart's theology number 1 According to Orthodox doctrine, the same Christ incarnate is also the Logos through whom all things come to be. The Logos is the source and destiny of all that is. Quote, for God who made, the, who made and brought into existence all things by his infinite power contains, gathers, and limits them, and in his providence binds both intelligible and sensible beings to himself and to one another, maintains St. Maximus. Quote, all beings which are by nature distinct from one another, he makes them converge in each other by the singular force of their relationship to him as origin. So Lindsay is saying, we need to abandon our sharp, sometimes arrogant separation of humankind from the rest of nature. Because as we'll see later, this, this kind of thinking is often buttressed by non-theological considerations like, mm. like Aristotle and other um, Hellenistic sources. Mm, interesting. And we'll get into that more. So number one, again, the, Lindsay's criticism of Bart's theology is that Christ incarnate is the source, not just of humans, but of all things. Um, number two... Lindsay says, there is the ancient patristic principle that what is not assumed in the incarnation 
is not healed in the redemption. So again, that just makes me think, isn't it interesting that we're always limiting what is covered, who and what is covered under the incarnation, who and what is covered under the resurrection, who and what is covered under the love of God and the grace and the kindness and the mercy, the benevolence. I mean, it makes you think of like those verses that say that, you know, God causes the rain to, to fall on the righteous and the evil, you know, God causes the sun to shine on all of creation. Like, we always we're always trying to limit God's goodness, right? God's gifts, God's love, God's consideration. It just seems like that as humans, that's what we're prone to do is be like, oh, no, God doesn't love them or God doesn't care about that. Or, but you know, actually, you know, I love this this ancient principle that what is not a- assumed in the incarnation is not healed in the redemption. So Lindsay says, the Bartian view that there is a specifically human nature absolutely differentiated from all other natures or nature itself is untenable if Christ is also the Logos, the co-creator through whom all things come to be. When the word visited the Holy Virgin Mary, the spirit came to her with him and the word in the spirit molded the body and conformed it to himself, writes St. Athanasius, desiring to join and present all creation to the Father through himself and in it to reconcile all things, having made peace, whether things in heaven or things upon the earth. Athanasius is not a lone voice. In uniting himself with man, writes St. John of the Cross, God united himself with the nature of all creatures. So again, there have been church fathers along the way who have had a theology that God is not just for humans. God is for God's creation in total. But that, that is pretty powerful. If, uh, if the logos was present at the beginning of the world, at the creation of the world, and you would think then his sacrifice and the result of his redemption would be for the entire world. Yeah, that, I know. that seems logical. I know right? when you, when you put it that way, you're like, of course. Yeah, that's pretty. That's of pretty course. amazing. And then number three, the third criticism for Bart that Lindsay levies is Christ is not only co-creator of all things, Christ is also the reconciler of all things. The work of creation, incarnation, and reconciliation are three sides of the one mysterious divine activity accomplished in Christ. So, again, not only did he create all things, all creatures, he also desires to reconcile all things. Mm. So, Bart's theology too easily severs the connection between the revealing word and the cosmos in which that word is revealed. So, no surprise to anybody, but Lindsay would definitely resonate more closely with Schweitzer yeah. than he does with Bart on this point. Um, he concludes this part of the chapter by saying, The common origin of all creatures is a doctrine that carries with it implications and consequences, which so far only a few in the Christian tradition have fully appreciated. Quote, surely we ought to show kindness and gentleness to animals for many reasons, writes St. Christostom, and chiefly because 
they are of the same origin as ourselves. A view similar to that of St. Bonaventure, who says of St. Francis that, quote, when he considered the primordial source of all things, he was filled with even more abundant piety, calling creatures, no matter how small, by the name of brother and sister, because he knew that they had the same source as himself. Thomas Traherne likewise speaks of how God enjoyeth the whole world so that all that is therein are God's own peculiar treasures, and that since we are made in God's image to live in his similitude as they are his, they must be our treasures too. And Lindsay sums up, the value of Schweitzer's thought may lie precisely in this area, that he articulates a frequently forgotten implication of doctrine, which whenever heard, however strange, laughable, or incredible it may sound, resonates with some sense of the creator's will for individual creatures. Hmm. So I appreciate that. I appreciate, yeah. I appreciate um, Schweitzer's idea of living life from a place of reverence for creation. That really resonates for me. And then, you know, the fact that Bart's main complaint, he said it's, it is important to think about this. You're not sentimental, Schweitzer, for thinking about this. We do need to think. But it sounds like you're kind of taking humans off the throne. Right. <laughs> you know? And then for Lindsay to be like, well, no, Christologically, if we give the incarnation its full understanding, then it only makes sense that Christ loves and cares about and is going to redeem and reconcile all right. through the incarnation. Yeah, to me, you know, no surprise again, but yeah, to me, it, it really is a strong theological argument. I think so too. I think it's huge. Yeah. And I was just going to say, in, in the bit we've read and some of the other stuff, I'm also reading Animal Theologians by Andrew Lindsay, and I think it's his daughter, Claire Lindsay. Yeah, I, I'm just happy because I think both of us are, are finding the theology that we've kind of been developing and talking about our first few episodes, I feel like it falls in line with this theology. I think we're on the right track. And so mm. I'm very happy about that. Yes. You know, a lot, we're using some of the same thinking and he's definitely, like you said, bolstering our thinking, increasing our thinking and knowledge on theology around this area too. Um, just the, just that inner coherence, that inner logic to, a theology that it has to be moral. You know what I mean? We haven't really gotten into it. We will probably get into it maybe in the next episode, but this, this concept where he breaks down theology into theologia. And I think it's a Schweitzer concept, but it's, it just talks about how your theology has to be complete, comprehensive, and has to have an inner logic. So kind of what you're already saying here, that if God created the entire world, then it only makes logical sense that he cares about the entire world and he's going to redeem the entire world. So anyway, yeah, good stuff. It's been fun. Yeah. We'll continue on this journey next time. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Appreciate it.